0: Thank you. Back to the Agora, the podcast about Greece brought to you by Macropolis. I'm Phoebe Fronista. This episode is going to be slightly different to the previous 41 we've made, as we will be marking one decade since Macropolis was launched. During that time, so much has happened in Greece, it's impossible to know where to start. The debt crisis obviously looms large over everything, but we've also been through a lot of political turmoil, social upheaval migration crisis, diplomatic breakthroughs and impasses, and, especially recently, major unprecedented natural disasters. So, with the help of some good friends of the pod, we're going to look back on some of the most memorable events and moments of the last decade. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome Macropolis co-founders Nick Malkudzis and Yanis Muzakis, so we can have a quick chat about how they started their political and economic analysis service and what the last 10 years have been like. Hey, guys.
1: Hi, Phoebe. Hello, Phoebe.
0: So, first of all, for the listeners who don't know, what is Macropolis and what does it do?
1: Well, uh Macropolis is, as you mentioned, a political and economic analysis service. What we do is cover what's going on in Greece and try to put it into context and to explain it to our subscribers. Along with that, we provide macroeconomic data covering the full range of what's going on in the Greek economy. And the idea, Phoebe, is really to provide a service to people who are following Greece for professional reasons but of course we don't only do that and as our podcast listeners will know we, we try to broaden things out uh and through our blog section the which is also called the agora like the podcast to um, provide access to uh, discussion to analysis to commentary on events in greece be they politics economy social uh, developments whatever's going on um And that's really the idea a place that uh, people can come and find out uh, what's going on in Greece in a a balanced, independent, um, insightful way, hopefully.
0: And tell me a little bit, how did Macropolis come about, though? Because you were both in steady jobs when the inspiration for this new venture came to you guys. Yeah,
2: well, you know, you have to look at the circumstances back in those years, like, you know, 2010 to 2012, when the you know, the crisis and the complexity and the depth of it basically shook from, you know, the society, the economy, the political system, and the, I mean, it caused us about 23, 24% of our GDP just in 2010, 11, and 12, which is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So as the, you know, the, the crisis was unfolding, it was obvious that it was much more complex and deep than what most of the people thought. And as much as international media did a really good job uh, in covering the crisis during those years, most of the work that was done was feature pieces. So we thought that it would make sense to have a service that takes this rather complex country, which is... Reminding you more of a Balkan country than a Eurozone country and try to add some perspective into what's happening for an audience either domestically and even for an audience uh, abroad. And clearly this is something that that was missing and we thought maybe there is an opportunity for us.
0: And did people think you were crazy to be starting this project in the darkest depths of the Greek crisis?
1: Well, funnily enough, uh, no the people didn't think we were crazy. Of course, looking back on it, on my, uh, m- on myself, ten years ago, I th- I, now I would think I, maybe it was a bit crazy. And <laughs> when with Yanis <laughs> in the middle of the country's worst economic crisis since the Second World War, we decided to put our savings into uh, trying to uh, set up uh, this uh, business. Uh, I I think people found the idea interesting. Obviously, like us, no one really knew if it would uh, take off. And I remember we were speaking to one uh, colleague, actually, who said, uh, you know, the idea is fine, but probably by next year the crisis will be over and the interest in Greece will have (laughs) dissipated. Um, And this was more than 10 years ago. So, you know, here we are uh, uh, in 2023, and, of course, the crisis in the form it was is no longer there uh, but the interest in Greece remains and that's really what we've tried to tap into that regardless of what's happening whether Greece is in the headlines on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the FD or whatever it may be uh, there are people still interested beyond that to know what's going on on a daily or weekly basis the kind of more granular stuff and to understand it, to have the noise filtered out and and to have an appreciation of what it all means. And, you know, at times we struggle to make sense of it. So it's only natural that people watching from outside uh, have a difficult time as well.
0: And lastly, what role do you guys see Macropolis playing now and over the coming years? What more do you think there is to accomplish?
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, reaching this point is an accomplishment in itself because we started this on our own. It was kind of a dive in at the at the deep end, and. Uh, We just had to see if it worked and and fortunately enough it did and of course a lot of people have uh, contributed to that and we will hear from some of them we had some some great uh, colleagues along the way and people who supported us uh, morally uh, uh, which we needed and I think where we are now is you know it's an interesting moment in in that The type of interest in Greece has obviously changed dramatically since we started. Uh, Then it was all about bad news, if you like, and a lot of it was about people being interested in Greece because they were worried about the consequences of what was happening here. Of course, now it's a different story, and uh, at least on the economic front, there is more positive news, even though uh, in terms of what we're seeing over the last few months especially in terms of the natural disasters there's a lot of problems afflicting Greece um so, so the nature of the interest has changed but the interest is still strong Greece remains for a small country a place that produces a hell of a lot of news and significant developments and it's a significant part of the world and a kind of juncture between uh the West and the East, the North and the South and uh, Europe and uh, other parts of the the world as we're seeing also in a, in a diplomatic sense or whether it's to do with energy or whatever it may be. Um, and it's also an interesting moment in that I think the ability to provide a balanced, insightful analysis of what's happening here and for it to be as unbiased as possible is more valuable than ever. We've all seen, uh, and it's something that we've covered here on the podcast, Phoebe, that the concerns about um, if it's not media freedom in Greece, then maybe media independence or the quality of, of media. So you know, we feel we're performing an important service in trying to inform people in as balanced a manner as we can, so they can understand what's really happening. And of course, another part of that is trying to shed light on developments that perhaps are uncomfortable for some people and would rather they would rather they be swept under the under the carpet. And of course, there are, there are other. Uh, media outlets in Greece, investigative media outlets who are focused on that and doing a a great job. But we're also here to kind of highlight those and and try to understand their implications in a political and economic uh, sense as well. So I think that's that's the role that we have to keep fulfilling.
0: Here's to 10 years more. Uh,
1: And then retirement, as I say. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay, I think now is a good time to start hearing from our contributors. We ask 10 people who have either been directly associated with Macropolis or who we consider close friends to talk about a moment or event in Greece from the past 10 years that has stayed with them. We have a fantastic and varied selection of memories to hear. So sit back and take it all in as we revisit what has been a remarkable period for Greece as a country and for us personally. We'll start with our foreign policy analyst Alexandra Voudouri, someone who has been involved with Macropolis for many years.
3: Well, um, hello to all Macropolis friends and, of course, my beloved colleagues. Um, introductions first. I'm Alexandra Voudouri, currently Greek Daily's Kathimerini's Brussels correspondent, and proud member of the Macropolis fantastic team for almost eight years now. Um, I still remember the day when Nick and I agreed to work together again. And honestly, this joint journey with the team has been my favorite in my almost 20 years career in journalism. But I was not asked to talk about our personal moments, but rather Greece's in the last 10 years, which definitely consists of a special chapter of extraordinary, unprecedented events in its modern history. And if I had to choose one moment of these due to my personal interest and job affiliation as a diplomatic affairs editor for many years, that would definitely be the signing of the Prespa Agreement in June 2018 between Greece and now, as it is called, North Macedonia, which marked the end of one of the longest, uh, I would say, diplomatic uh, disputes in Europe. I had been covering the issue for many years and uh, still remember the frustration of my colleagues from North Macedonia and the bitterness they felt in 2008 when Greece blocked then, uh, their way to NATO in the relevant summit in Romania due to the name dispute. Um, And I still remember the embarrassment I felt when I had to explain to other colleagues of mine there from the UK or Portugal, Turkey and Spain, what was all this fuss about. So after almost a year of strenuous negotiations in 2018, which we followed closely, the moment of the signing of the agreement was uh, definitely a joyful moment one of the very few, if I may say, in Greece's political and diplomatic history in the last 10 years. Um, It has been a courageous moment for both governments and their leaders that came, of course, with a heavy political price for both Zoran Zaev and Alexis Tsipras. However, it has created a momentum for both Greece and its role in the Balkans, but certainly for the European perspectives of the whole region, Even though the momentum uh, was clearly lost after some time when other member states, namely France and Bulgaria, blocked the way for the Western Balkans and North Macedonia, respectively, the signing of the agreement is already written with golden letters in the history of the EU and, of course, of both countries. Now, I remembered the agreement recently, Due to the ongoing spat between Greece and Albania for a minor issue this time, which, however, I'm afraid and concerned that will stigmatize Athens again as an obstacle of one of of one Balkan country's European hopes. And I certainly uh, wish that these personal concerns will not be verified.
1: That was Alexandra Voduri, a foreign policy analyst for Macropolis and Brussels correspondent for Kathimerini Newspaper, with her memorable moment of the last 10 years Our second contribution comes from Macropolis Features Editor, Jorgya Naku, another long-time associate. Let's hear from Jorgya.
4: Hello, my name is Jorgya Naku and I've been Features Editor at Macropolis since 2018 and a friend and occasional collaborator of the site for slightly longer. My chosen moment from what we might call the Macropolis decade is about to mark its own five-year anniversary as I record this. It dates to the Thessaloniki International Fair in September of 2018. The moment is a visual. This is, I admit, perhaps not the best suited format for a podcast, but if you bear with me, I will attempt to paint a picture for you. First of all, I would like to give credit to the photographer Aris Messinis, who captured the image on behalf of the AFP. What does the picture show? The setting is a main street that has been obviously closed to traffic. In the foreground, to the left of the frame, is a male, probably in his 40s. The man is shouting in the direction of the viewer and walking away, whilst gesturing to his genitals in a manner familiar to anyone who has witnessed a heated argument between Greek males. The message is clear. I think I've made my point, and this here is how little regard I have for your rebuttal. Those of you who have seen the photo will know the pun is intentional. The man is clad in a T-shirt, flip-flops and cargo shorts. Their cargo shorts are lured around his knees, displaying a pair of rotund buttocks, and with them the rhetorical thrust, if you like, of his argument. To the right of the frame, a very different figure. He is sporting a long cassock, indicative of some kind of orthodox cleric, or more likely a monk. In his hands, he is holding a large religious icon, depicting the Virgin and Child. The Virgin appears to be averting her gaze bashfully from the mooning man. On his face, the question mark monk, is wearing a gas mask, of the type usually worn by hardcore protesters in anticipation of a volley of tear gas. Like an extra out of a Monty Python film, he is armed both with religious zeal and modern protective gear for extra measure. Framed by these two incongruous figures, a clue as to the context of the photo. A woman in full makeup and platform sandals. Draped around her shoulders is a blue and gold flag with a star of Vergina, the emblem of the kings of Macedon. Behind her is a crowd waving full-size blue and white Greek flags. The moment in the photo is around three months after the signing in June 2018 of the Prespa Agreement between Greece and the country now formerly known as the Republic of North Macedonia, which ended a decades-long diplomatic dispute over the use of the, the name Macedonia. The protesters have gathered to voice their disapproval calling for the overthrow of the government whom they call traitors for supposedly selling out a national cause. This was the last time Alexis Tsipras would address the Thessaloniki International Affairs Prime Minister, as the Syriza-Nel coalition which he led was displaced by the New Democracy Administration headed by Kyriakos Mitsotakis in the elections of the following summer. But I think the significance of the tableau captured in this photo goes beyond the specifics of the anti-Prespass protests. Messinus's photo captures some of the deepest and darkest forces in Greek politics and society. Forces that were fanned by the financial crisis and presbyters, but like stubborn embers in a seemingly extinguished wildfire, they keep reigniting and threatening to engulf civil rights and values that have been years in the making. I am often prompted to go back to this image, captured in the heat of the moment yet so multi-layered and dense in cultural symbolism, because it remains so topical. The macho exhibitionist may not be as obviously threatening as the one wearing the meander armband or carrying a torch in a Hellenic pastiche at the Nuremberg rallies but his fellow travellers can be found on the football terraces waiting to be given the nod to raise hell when the club owner is displeased. His spiritual brethren were last seen mere days ago rounding up migrants near the Evros border in vigilante squads purporting to be arresting invading arsonists. The rioting monk was at the anti-Covid vaccination protests, or in any event someone who looked very much like him. He will almost certainly be there at the inevitable marches against the new ID cards on the grounds that they contain the mark of the Antichrist and monitoring chips. Despite the much-advertised defeat of the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn at the ballot box and in court, we recently saw their former spokesman, Ilias Kasidiaris gaining 4.7% of the vote in June's national elections through a proxy party called Spartiates. The ultra-nationalist Greek solution increased their standing to 12 MPs, and a new party, religious fundamentalist Niki, came seemingly out of nowhere to take 3.7% and 10 seats. That is a total of 13% of the vote for niche parties, with a laser-focused, ultra-conservative agenda, representing a sought-after reservoir of voters which have, on occasion, found a home in more mainstream parties, which in turn continue to court them. Their politicians have been welcomed into parties which profess to be modernising. Makis Voridis, Adonis Yoriadis and Thanos Plevris, former colleagues of Greek Solutions Kyriakos Philopoulos in the Laos party, were given key cabinet posts by Kyriakos Mitsotakis, now legitimised as converts to NeraDemocratia. In fact, no party in recent memory has found a way to govern without them, either within the tent or in some kind of partnership. Syriza too found it necessary to go into coalition with ANEL, a now defunct ultranationalist party, in order to make up the numbers. You may think these parties are too small, too niche, too heterogeneous and too prone to implosion to make a difference. But you would be wrong. With the ID card issue, they have already demonstrated that they can shape the agenda. Already, they have cornered no-democratia ministers into making statements such as that by former Citizens Protection Minister Nodis Mitarakis, that the new ID cards are not an insult to the orthodox faith, one of several gaffes that cost him his job. They have goaded the Prime Minister into offering the seemingly absurd assurance that IDs have neither chips nor cameras and microphones. Neither of these statements speak of a government in control. Other points to watch out for, courtesy of these parties now in Parliament, are in no particular order of priority the anti-abortion cause, a.k.a. the rights of the unborn child, the call to ban so-called homosexual propaganda in schools, and the introduction of chastity classes. The flip-flop-wearing Moona and the Monty Python monk are very much still with us. They are the extremist tail that can wag the would-be reformist, centrist, business-friendly dog with a reflexive twitch of a muscle. Now, I know this is not supposed to be a plug from Acropolis, but I just wanted to say... That what I appreciate about the platform Nick and Yanis have built, and I hope its readers and subscribers appreciate it too, is that we have the scope to cover these subjects alongside the hard economic data and the policy reviews. Thank you.
0: That was Macropolis Features editor Yudhya Naku reminiscing in her own inimitable style about an image that has stuck with her. And now let's hear
1: from Omira Gill, who was a member of the Macropolis team for several years.
5: My name is Omira Gill, and I am a former journalist from Macropolis. The moment in Greece's recent history that I have chosen to talk about is the murder of Shahzad Lukman. Shahzad Lukman was a 27-year-old immigrant who possessed the paperwork to legally live and work in Greece. In the early hours of seventeenth of January 2013, He was fatally stabbed as he prepared to leave for his job at a local fruit and vegetable market. The culprits were two supporters of the neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn. I've chosen to talk about Shehzad's murder because for visible minorities like myself, this incident was a turning point in our lives in Greece. It was one of many that had begun to occur after Golden Dawn, emboldened by their rise to power the previous year, began to act on their hatred and racism. Attacks like these rarely made the news but shazad's did. His murder crystallized the fact that none of us were safe, and that not all the votes that Golden Dawn received were protest votes. There was a core body of Golden Dawn supporters who not only believed the party's toxic ideology but were willing to act on it. When not even the murder of shazad forced the hand of authorities to act against Golden Dawn, I began to despair. Where did people like me, immigrants in Greece, stand in the makeup of the country if our murders were not enough to provoke action? There was also hope. Shazad's death immediately sparked a wave of enormous protest against Golden Dawn. They were a reminder that Greek society was willing to push back against this poison, and action did eventually follow, but it took the loss of another life, this time a Greek one. A lot has changed in the intervening years. Golden Dawn's key players were jailed, and the party was banned from Parliament. A decade on, the idea still persists, and it would be foolish to forget the murder's legacy lest history repeats itself. Greece, its history, and all members of its society deserve better.
0: That was Amira Gill looking at one of the many painful memories that the last 10 years have given us.
1: Now, let's move on to Jens Bastian, a regular contributor to the Macropolis blog section, also called the Agora, like the podcast, and he's been contributing there right from the start. In fact. Jens still blogs there with Bob Tra. Together, they publish regular pieces that try to get beneath the surface of the Greek economy. You can check these articles out on our website, www.macropolis.gr. Let's hear what stands out for Jens from the last 10 years.
6: Hello together. On the occasion of Macropolis's 10-year anniversary podcast, to which I congratulate all those involved, in particular Nick and his great team of colleagues from Greece, Cyprus, and other countries. My name is Jens Bastian. I'm currently in Berlin at the Center for Applied Turkey Studies, which is abbreviated CATS, and I'm labeled a CATS Fellow at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, which is better known through its German abbreviation, the SWP. But in the past two decades, I have also lived and worked in Greece, in Athens and in Saloniki, partly in private banking, then for the European Commission. And in this time, I also got to know Nick as a friend, a colleague, and Macropolis. What I would like to talk about is the experience of a German citizen in Greece at the onset of what came to be known as the Greek crisis. Although in reality, it extended way beyond Greece in 2010 and the years that followed, including Portugal, including Ireland, Cyprus, Italy and what it meant to me as a German citizen being married to a Greek citizen to experience how from one day to the other finger-pointing started between both countries, very much led by various politicians, the recriminations that emerged, the manner in which in particular in Germany, politicians and the media started to finger point at Greece and lecture and demand, for example, outrageous demands from Greece to, I remember, selling islands in order to pay back debt or leveraging the Acropolis, in order to reduce accumulated public debt. This for me as a citizen from Germany living in Greece was a provocation. I experienced it as something that personally affected me and where I felt I cannot let this go by without reacting. I felt as a German citizen, the country that I had chosen to live the person with whom I had chosen to establish a family and a new home in my adopted country, that this was intolerable to accept that Germany would, in particular, with its historical legacies in Greece, would again criticize and in many ways also demonize Greece. I got involved. I started to give interviews, to write articles, and to meet Greeks like Nick and others who were just as shocked and who also tried not only to understand what was emerging, but also identify possible solutions. Another colleague that I remember back then, George Zogopoulos, was very much one who equally was able to bridge Germany and Greece. In many ways to be seen in Greece as somebody that could explain what is happening in Germany and why it is happening. And when I would travel to Germany to be asked, why are certain developments emerging in Greece and what are possible solutions? I'm happy to say that after A number of very difficult years between both countries, large parts of their societies, the rhetorical de-escalation has set in the manner in which both countries today at the level of politics or in media operate together and again have a form of dialogue that is constructive, that is focused on issues of the day and finding solutions I'm relieved to experience that. And I do think, and by this I will conclude, that part of this dialogue, part of reestablishing a constructive form of discussion between Germany and Greece, between Berlin and Athens, has also been enabled by the manner in which Macropolis was established and then expanded and addressed also some of the issues that I've tried to highlight. Hence, the anniversary of Macropolis also is an anniversary that highlights institutions, individuals that can establish bridges and make sure that these bridges are sustainable over time. Thank you very much.
0: That was Jens Bastian, a long-time contributor to Macropolis, with his recollections of these peculiar times we have lived through.
1: Jens referenced Greece's economic crisis, which was not only the starting point for Macropolis coming into existence, as we mentioned with Janice earlier, but has also marked much of the project's work over the last 10 years. After all, it was only in 2018 that Greece exited the last of its three bailouts. And just a few days ago, that the country regained the investment grade for its sovereign debt, which was lost in 2011 during the early days of the crisis. Sticking with the theme of the crisis, we have two contributions coming up that address what could be considered the peak of this fraught and frantic period in Greece's modern history the referendum of July 2015, when then-Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras asked Greeks to choose whether to accept the latest bailout terms proposed by the country's creditors or whether to say no or ochi and take a step into the unknown. As it happens, Greeks voted ochi and ended up with a third bailout, but the country remained part of the Eurozone. Let's find out how our journalist friends remember it, though. First, we'll hear from Marcus Walker of The Wall Street Journal, and then Yannis Palologos of Inside Story and Kathy Morini Yassas, I'm Marcus Walker,
7: Southern Europe Bureau Chief of The Wall Street Journal. One night in April 2015, Nick Malkoutsis, Yanis Mousakis and I went for a curry in central Athens. Greece was on front pages around the world as the Syriza-led government of Alexis Tsipras tried to take on the German-led creditors, end austerity and win European financing for a much more gentle fiscal policy. Those were dramatic months. Everyone was struggling to figure out how the story would end. Greeks, Europeans, Americans, media, analysts, markets, even the politicians and central bankers involved at the highest level. Would Greece crash out of the Euro? Would others then follow? Who would give in? So the three of us, Nick, Yannis, and I, took out a sheet of paper. Yannis started sketching a decision tree we debated the, pos- the possible pathways that followed from two branches, representing a deal, meaning Cyprus gave in and accepted a new bailout program with austerity measures attached, or no deal. Each branch then split into various smaller branches, mapping out sub-scenarios, such as series of splitting, or ANEL, the junior coalition partner jumping ship, or the ECB helping or refusing to help finance Greek banks in the absence of a deal, The three of us thought as hard as we could about each branch of our tree, taking all of our combined knowledge of the people involved, their goals and fears and constraints. What's remarkable, looking at that sheet of paper now, is how many of the branches ended in capital controls, a referendum, new elections, and how even our no-deal branch ended up circling back to the deal branch, but only after capital controls and a possible referendum or elections. And that, of course, is how it happened in reality. First no deal, then Capital controls, a referendum, a deal, and new elections that gave Cyprus more control of Syriza after a split. In our debate over Curry, we had concluded that Tsipras was prepared to do the U-turn, the Coletuba, but that his main problem was how to bring his party along with him. We identified that central problem for him. And that Tsipras would probably be unable to bite the bullet until after time ran out. Thinking back to that night of analysis... curry reminds me of the massive uncertainty that gripped the Eurozone in the spring of 2015, but of the enormous value of thinking hard and clearly with my friends Nick and Yannis, who always kept level heads when others were losing their heads.
8: I'm Yannis Paleolovos. I'm a journalist with Inside Story and Kathimerini, and a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Athens. One of the key reasons why Greece had a harder time recovering from its financial crisis than its Eurozone peers was its divided society. From the early days of the bailout period, the interpretation of what had befallen the country and how it could emerge from its crippling recession veered between two extremes. On one end of the spectrum were those who thought Greece itself was almost exclusively to blame. corrupt and unwilling to reform, its population was hooked on government handouts and tax evasion. What was required, therefore, was full submission to the terms of the bailouts. Its medicine was bitter, but it was the only way out of the morass. At the other end were those who argued that the people were blameless, that Greece was the victim of an international conspiracy whose members and aims varied depending on the version of populism espoused, but which was served in every case by the compromised local political class. What was required was new leadership, willing to stand up to Greece's creditors and to seek economic and financial support outside Europe, even from countries hostile to the West. The government formed by Alexis Tsipras in January 2015 was composed of the main exponents of the left- and right-wing version of self-victimizing populism, his own Syriza party and the independent Greeks. Its determination to break with the austerity first logic of the bailouts wanted a great deal of public support in its early days. But as negotiations with Greece's creditors faltered in the spring of that year, As debt payment deadlines loomed and the fear of Grexit surged back with a vengeance, the long-simmering conflict in society burst to the surface. Citizens, terrified of a rupture with the Europeans, started taking to the streets under the banner of Menum Evropi. Leftist supporters of the government organized counter-demonstrations, with revanchist slogans harking back to the country's bloody civil war. Government ministers fanned the flames of division, accusing critics of being a fifth column seeking to terrorize the Greek people into an extension of the bailout regime. Tensions peaked when Tsipras called his ill-considered, ill-fated referendum. In those nine days of the campaign, the whole country was divided up in the opposing camps of Neh and Ochi. Pempers frayed, arguments flared, friends became estranged. After the triumph of Ochi, with the country on the brink of a chaotic default and a return to the drachma, Tsipras returned to the negotiating table. Eight days after the referendum, he signed a humiliating new bailout agreement with further austerity and new terms restricting Greece's economic sovereignty. Greeks didn't rejoice, but through gritted teeth, most admitted it was a necessary evil. Tsipras was re-elected two months later, this time as a proponent of the new Mnemonio. The passions he had done so much to foment petered out. Greece would remain in the Eurozone and the Western alliance. After flirting persistently once more in its history with disaster, it had let common sense prevail at the last possible minute.
0: That was Yanis Paleologos reminiscing about the 2015 referendum. And right before him, we heard from Marcus Walker describing the political machinations that preceded the vote and how he, Nick, and our own Yanis Muzaikis figured it all out over an Indian meal.
1: Now, Phoebe, I think it could go down... That's the most expensive meal in history, given that the cost attached to the fraught period Marcus describes came to tens of billions of euros. Actually, you know... What a curry. Yeah, yeah. I would like to say it was worth it, but, um, you know... Greek Indian food. Actually... Yannis wrote a blog post a few years ago in which he tried to calculate the economic and fiscal impact of the negotiations and the referendum, which, as we said, culminated in the third bailout. He estimated at the time at around 70 billion euros, although others have claimed it was higher. Um, if you're into that kind of thing, it's worth revisiting what Yannis wrote, and if you want to remember how mad and futile those days were. Have a meal first, though, uh, it might put you off your food.
0: (laughs) We'll stick with the crisis theme for a little bit longer, as our next guest has sent us something that is related. She's the economist Megan Green, and here's what stood out for her about Greece, a country she's developed a bond with over the last decade.
9: Hi, I'm Megan Green. I'm an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, Uh, And it's a real honor to be asked to contribute, um, and to contribute particularly to Macropolis, which has produced so much good research and analysis through the years. Um, I was asked to choose a moment over the past 10 years that's made a particular impression on me with respect to Greece, and there are so many to choose from, in part because even though the crisis is quote-unquote over, I continue to return to Greece and particularly Athens regularly. Uh, but one moment that really strikes me for this exercise um, is the time that I went with a friend to um, a bookstore cafe in Athens, uh, and the friend had brought me there because his friend had opened it, and we sat down and, and ordered a coffee, and the waitress walked straight out the door um, into the street, and I, not speaking Greek, I was pretty confused about what was going on, so I asked my friend, and he said, well... This bookstore cafe owner couldn't get the permits to actually make cafe. Uh, sorry, to make coffee um, in this cafe. In fact, they had a full menu, but they couldn't actually put together any of the dishes there. So they had struck up a deal with a bar across the street in order to provide coffee and food to their patrons. Um, later on in this uh, meeting, someone tried to buy a book. Uh, And it was the evening, it was very late in the evening, and there was a big fight, and uh, the woman left the book on the counter and walked out, and I asked what had happened, and I guess the bookstore cafe had also failed to get a permit to sell books at that particular time in the evening. Now, without the ability to dig through Greek law myself, I had to rely um, on my friend for this encounter, but you know, it, it struck me that I was sitting in a bookstore cafe that could neither sell books nor make coffee. And and that struck me as emblematic of the problem in Greece that brought it into crisis. Um, now, Greece has subsequently gone through significant changes, um, you know, an actual economic depression. Um, and I think some of these things have really improved over the, the past 10 years. Um, but I worry that not enough has improved. So by way of example, of something that has improved a lot of bureaucracy in Greece has been digitalized. That was partly thanks to the pandemic. Um, you know, Greece did come show up as a an outlier on the positive side during the first lockdowns of COVID um, for its success in, in bending the curve, so to speak. Um, but I do worry that Greece is still very much a country in which you can get anything done or nothing done depending in part on who you are and what your resources are. And, you've managed to charm to some degree um, and institutional weakness is certainly a concern in particular the judiciary which i think may continue to keep uh, international investors wary i'll point to the your you case uh, which is still ongoing uh, it's a real stain on greece's record um, I'd also point to the current account balance in Greece, which has never actually reached surplus, despite the massive economic depression Greece has gone through. That just suggests, that suggests there continue to be structural rigidities in the Greek economy um, that need to be dealt with. So I think Greece is in this wonderful period where, thanks to a debt restructuring, it doesn't really have to be tested in the markets. It's just been given investment grade. Uh, but, but that ends, you know, after roughly 2032 when Greece will have to go into the markets. I think investors might dig a little bit, um, look at some of the structural issues, the institutional weakness. And I, and I worry Greece isn't fully out of the woods, even if it's been given this reprieve. So a lot has changed, but I think a lot of work is left to be done. And, and I hope that Greece actually goes ahead and, and does do that work while it, while it has the space to the problem with human nature is that if no one's breathing down your neck, uh, you tend not to take your medicine. You tend not to do the hard work. So uh, I would urge uh, this government and, and future ones uh, to try to reduce some of the structural rigidities like those that kept this cafe bookshop from being able to really operate.
1: That was economist Megan Green, who was appointed to the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee this summer. So, VB, we've heard from seven of our 10 guests so far, three more to go. My maths is still top-notch. Up next is another beloved friend of Micropolis and an excellent reporter, Joanna Kakisis, Joanna is currently the Correspondent and Bureau Chief for National Public Radio in Ukraine. We are very grateful to her for taking the time to record this message for us in such a difficult environment. Here's what Joanna chose as her moment of the last 10 years.
10: Yes, I am Joanna Kakissis, an International Correspondent for NPR, the U.S. Public Radio Network, I am now in Ukraine, but I used to be based in Athens, and I'm a big fan of Macropolis and Nick Malkoutsis in particular. Hi, Nick. Um, I'm picking the month of September 2015 for my memorable moment in Greece. It was a time when a photograph about tragedy in the Aegean Sea prompted not mass indifference or racist tropes, but a genuine outpouring of humanity from the world. On September 2, 2015, the body of a two-year-old Syrian boy, Ilan Kurdi, washed up on a Turkish shore. A photographer captured the image. There was this little boy in blue pants and a red shirt. His shoes were still on. He was lying on the sand as if he was asleep. Ilan had drowned as he and his family tried to cross the Aegean to Greece. The image went viral, and suddenly everyone seemed to care about refugees in the Mediterranean Sea and around the Aegean Sea in particular. The world finally seemed to realize that there are tragic consequences to the way we police borders. For one month, the world saw refugees as people, not as numbers or as invaders or as political pawns. I chose this moment because even before September 2015, Greeks on the Aegean Islands had already come to this realization. Though Greece was still in the throes of an austerity-driven recession, the locals on these islands welcomed the desperate strangers arriving drenched and dehydrated on their shores. They brought dry clothes, fresh water, warm food, and so much love. I remember a grandmother swaddling a shivering baby in a big fluffy blanket, kissing the baby as if he was her own grandchild. This was Philoxenia in the truest sense of the word. I remember calling my mom back then and crying a lot. I was just so touched by what I was seeing. And in September 2015, when the rest of the world finally noticed, I thought maybe we've learned something here. But the moment, it didn't last, of course. And eight years after we saw that dead baby boy, it seems that we, both Greece and Europe, are pretty much back to where we started.
0: That was Joanna Kakisis sharing her memorable moment with us from Ukraine. Stay safe and keep up the great work with NPR, Joanna. And now it's the turn of another dear friend. He's Nikos Kuteris. He's an associate professor in EU law at the University of East Anglia in the UK. Nikos has been blogging from Acropolis for several years, writing about diplomatic issues, Brexit, leftist politics, and always bringing his special humour, as well as expertise, to his analysis. Here's his memorable moment.
11: Nikos Koudaris, Associate Professor in European Union Law, University of Istanbul. The moment that I have chosen is the signing of the Presbyterian Agreement. The reason is the following. I was born in 1980, six years after the Turkish invasion in Cyprus, And I grew up in the 90s, when the nationalist fervor, because of the name dispute with the then former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, was at its peak. So I belong to this generation of Greek people that were raised with this idea of the national issues, that Greece faces some existential challenges, like the Cyprus issue, like the name dispute with Macedonia and that those challenges are almost impossible to solve, not least because the international community does not treat us fairly. The signing of the presuppose agreement challenges the stereotypical understanding of our national issues. Why is that? Because it's one of the very few cases where our leadership managed to deliver a solution to, um, to a national issue in accordance with our national strategy. What was that? According to the official position of Greece, Greece wanted the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia to adopt a new name, a compound name with a geographical qualifier. And this is exactly what the Prespa Agreement delivered. It delivered a new name for a neighbour country that is now called North Macedonia. So it's one of the very few examples where we saw that if somebody, if our leadership perseveres and doesn't give in to the nationalist sirens, they can actually solve one of those problems. This comes in stark contrast with our experience in Cyprus. What is the national strategy there? We want to solve the, uh, the Cyprus issue in accordance with the Bisonal Bicommunal Federation. We came very close to that in the negotiations in Cran Montana in 2017. But unfortunately, the leadership there gave in to the nationalist fervor and didn't manage to actually find a solution to this um, uh, age-old conflict.
1: That was academic Nikos Kuteris, like Alexander Vuduri earlier, picking the signing of the Prespes Agreement or Prespa Agreement, whichever you prefer, as a standout memory. It was undoubtedly a landmark diplomatic moment, as Nikos and Alexander have explained so well.
0: And that brings us to our last contributor on this anniversary podcast. She is Mariangela Paone, an Italian freelance journalist and an author based in Spain. Mariangela has been visiting Greece regularly over the last 10 years, writing about the economic and the migration crises. And she's even published a book about the Greek crisis called Las Cuatro Estaciones de Atenas. Here's the memory she chose to share with us.
12: I am Mariangela Paone, an Italian reporter living in Spain, now at El Diario. It's difficult to choose a moment in the last 10 years when Greece has become a second home for me since I decided to visit Athens in July 2012, mixing holidays and work. Those were the days when new measures were being defined to get another part of the money from the memorandum signed with the so-called Troika. And one of the first Greek words I learned was enikiazete, for rent. Somehow, the whole country was, from that moment on, put up for rent or directly for sale. And there, in those streets, in the sweltering heat of July, I met this man, Konstantinos Polychronopoulos, who, with a group of volunteers, went around the town with a big pot and a camp cooker, and cooked every day in a different place to feed those who did not even have money for food. Two years earlier, he had lost his job in a multinational company and, tired of sending out resumes with no results, had locked himself in his house. Then, one day, He had gone out and seen two boys arguing over scraps of food and had tried to offer them sandwiches. They refused and the same did another man. After an hour, hungry, he grabbed one of the sandwiches and, as he began to eat, an old man came up to him asking for another one. That's when the idea of a solidarity kitchen where there were no passports or nationalities was born at the same time when the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn were organizing food distributions or blood donations only for Greeks, as I saw them do, months later, when they allowed me into their Red Quarter. This was the first story I wrote for El País about Greece in that July of 2012, as it was a symbol of resistance and solidarity. From then on, I decided to tell the story of the Greek crisis by giving a name and a face to the numbers that filled the economic and political news of those months. And Kostas, I met again many times later on those same streets when, in the queue for food, there were dozens of refugees in that new but old crisis that Greece faced shortly afterwards.
1: That was freelance journalist Mariangela Paone with her moving recollection of the social impact of the Greek crisis, a story that is often lost amid the dramatic political and economic developments. So there it is, 10 contributors with 10 memories of the last 10 years to mark the lifespan of the Macropolis project.
0: But before we go, let's share our own moments from the last 10 years. Janis, you want to go first?
1: Sure.
2: Well... I think my memorable moment was building up gradually during the first half of 2015 and um, f- for me the moment is when the referendum basically was uh, was announced in the days that followed primarily because at, at, I, I'm not aware that Tsipras had fully realized uh, what exactly you know was taking place that night with his announcement because the risk for the country, just went through the roof, and you all remember the negotiations led to rather acrimonious Eurogroup, where Greece was offered, a, you know, a break, a holiday from the euro until it sorts itself out by the, you the know, then German finance minister. But uh, interestingly enough, it was a thing around March that year that, um, with Marcus Walker over dinner we were trying to plot how this you know, hopeless negotiation tactic of Syriza could play out. Yeah, that's,
1: that's the moment that Marcus has uh, shared with us.
2: Yeah. So uh, you know, it, was, it was so obvious to an outside observer that at some point uh, you know, Syriza and Tsipras would find themselves with the backs against the ropes and they would just have to either you know, compromise fully or end up in a referendum. So, when well, the first thing that I did after I, you know, I saw the announcement, I called, I called Nick, and I said to him he did it, and both of us, I think, in a mixture of, you know, surprise and concern, and I don't know if it's fear mm-hmm. or at the same time, we we were basically telling each other, "We told
1: you so." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a moment, that period, that will remain you know in in the minds of everyone who who lived it and especially people who lived it uh, uh, so closely covering events and it's no surprise that Yanis uh, is the the third person to 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 mention that uh, we've already had two contributions on the referendum period
2: yeah and and then you know this this period of uh, this memorable period ended up with you know myself and meg at uh, the you know Syndagma Square, after the results were announced, when everybody was overjoyed for a know that I was actually probably the exact had the exact opposite feelings, but I don't think it mattered at the time. Yeah,
1: yeah, it. W- it w- yeah,
0: that that whole year was just every day of that year was. Crazy. Yeah, we didn't
2: get bored at all. <laughs> no,
0: and. And what about you, Nick? If I if I have to force you to, to pick a memory from from the last ten years, what would? Okay,
1: it be? well, uh, as with uh, y- Yanis and uh, Marcus, and also um, Yannis Palologos, who who described that period, the, you know, a- anything around that render referendum, that was the emotions were running high, and uh, I can distinctly remember having to make an early morning TV appearance for one of the foreign networks in the moments after Alexis Tsipras had overturned the result of the vote and agreed a third memorandum, as Yanis explained, with uh, the Greece's European creditors. And this was following, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, was it 17 hours of negotiations in Brussels? Something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah something
0: like that. Yeah. yeah, we were all awake. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I remember standing on the balcony of a hotel on Sindama Square. I can't remember, NJV Plaza, whatever it was. I
0: uh, think uh, yeah, yeah. it's Athens Plaza. That's where all the foreigners yeah, yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah.
1: Bleary-eyed. <laughs> I hadn't slept at all that night. And all that period, I, I have to admit, I wasn't sleeping very well at all due to concern and work and so on. And the sun was coming up over Parliament in sort of shining into my eyes and had to try and make sense of everything that happened and the truth is I couldn't and you know I started wondering how will we look back on this period in years to come as we're doing now of course and whether it will make sense to us why we got into this position why we put ourselves through all this and whether we learned anything from it and you know, I have to admit, eight years on, as we're sitting here discussing it, I'm I'm still searching for the answers. I, I really don't don't have them. I really this this period is still something of an enigma to me. Um, but Phoebe, I'm cheating a bit here because that's not really the moment I want to uh, pick out. <laughs> so I'm really having two moments here. But you know, that's okay. A, uh, I'll give okay, you. I'll give okay, it to you. thank you. Um, instead, I want to go back to August 2021. So not that far back. Uh, it was a time when, if you remember, massive wildfire ripped through the northern part of the island of Evia going from.
0: Oh, yeah. It was that other time when the prime minister said, oh, climate change is here and we really have to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. I remember. Right. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so the
1: fire, for those who don't know, it, it basically went from one side of the island to the other, ending up in the sea. Uh, any efforts to contain it uh, proved uh, ineffectual, let's say. Um, and I, at the time I was on, uh, Mount Pelio in Pelio at the time, and I could see the fire evolving, uh, just across the way. The smoke was billowing out over the Aegean and coming towards us. Um, and you remember Phoebe, it was incredibly hot during those days. One of the, yeah. the really strong, uh, heat waves we've had over the last few years. And I remember getting into the car to go to the beach and the, temperature gauge on the dashboard was showing well over 50 degrees uh, celsius because the, mm. the, the car had been in the, in the sun so i got down to the beach which was on the aegean side of uh, P- pilio and i'm providing this detail because the sea on the aegean side is much cooler than on the parasitic uh, gulf side of pilio for obvious reasons um, and now you know phoebe i'll admit that i'm a bit soft when it comes to cold water uh, I'm a bit of a wuss. I think I uh, still bear the mental scars of being forced to swim in an unheated open air swimming pool in the UK as a school kid. Uh Still,
0: you're not a real. Brute. Yeah, yeah.
1: Still, <laughs> still carry that uh, that burden. Um, so, going for a swim in the engine is always a testing experience for me. Once I'm in, I'm okay. But you know, getting in, I can. It's a bit sort of a gingerly uh, take it a bit gingerly, you know, slowly. Um, and I'll n- never forget that. On this particular day, after we raced through the burning sand, because it was really, really hot, reached the water, and as I advanced into the sea, I found that it wasn't cold at all. And in fact, I wouldn't even describe it as lukewarm. It was actually warm. I mean, I got in easily, so it was that warm. Um, and it just, I remember feeling really uncomfortable. It was disconcerting. It was spooky. I I actually wanted to get out. It just felt really, really strange. Uh, And that's the point I began to feel really unsettled about our future. The forest was burning a few kilometers away. The heat in the sun was unbearable. And the normally cool Aegean water was like, it was like someone had run a hot bath. And it struck me at that point that we're in for a really difficult time in Greece over the next few years, the next few decades, our nature and wildfire are disappearing or being debased. And our economic model is based around tourism and industry that is at threat because conditions are set to become even more intolerable even for worse. visitors. Yeah. At least, yeah. at least for some part of the year. Right. So yeah,
0: this summer was, was, was terrible. Right.
1: So the sea was
0: boiling everywhere. Yeah.
1: So it, it was a really sobering moment, and you know I, I won't forget it. And what I like to point out, and it, based, you know, also on what you're saying there is that at that time the North Evia fire was the largest ever recorded in Greece. And here we are, just two years later, that record was eclipsed. There's been eclipsed by the wildfire in Evros in northeastern Greece, which destroyed much of the Vardia National Park. And it was not only Greece's largest wildfire so far, but the largest on record in Europe using satellite imagery. Meanwhile, Pelio itself has been severely affected by the flooding caused by Storm Daniel at the beginning of September, as we heard in our first podcast of this fifth series. Infrastructure has been destroyed, people have been put out of business, homes have collapsed, and lives have been lost. And it sounds crazy to say it, but 2023 looks like a completely different world to even 2021 when things didn't look that encouraging. So uh, th- that's really the point I want to conclude on, that the climate crisis is advancing faster than we could have I- imagined. And uh, I guess we can't ignore anymore that we're all in hot water now.
0: And I guess it's, it's bigger than any financial crisis you know well when we do the the 20-year podcast we'll be like recording from underground caves and <laughs> yeah it, it,
1: yeah you know the, the-
0: <laughs> so it's going to be really quaint 2015 is going to be super like you say the, the,
1: the crisis that dominated so much of our lives the debt crisis or economic crisis whatever you want to call it will seem like a walk in the park if the the trend continues as as it has done over the last few years in terms of the environment and what about you, Phoebe? You were a street reporter for most of that decade, so you were right in the thick of it. What stands out for you as you look back on this period that we're discussing?
0: It's just so hard to pick one moment because there were so many insane, intense things that I saw at first hand, from from Papandreou resigning up to the pandemic. But but I just always have to come back to to that to that night, the night of the referendum, where. I didn't know that Yanis and, and Megan were there, but I was there. And, and I'll just I'll just never forget in, in this square that that for four years had been filled with rage and anger and tear gas. And suddenly it's filled with deliriously happy people just dancing in ecstasy. You know, they were they they really believed it, you know they really believed that that we had given the finger to the eu and to the imf and that this brave new dawn was coming and it was just it was just crazy because well i mean we'd we'd all been sleepless for like 2 weeks you know since the banks had closed and and i'll never forget we are back in the office after like filming all these happy people and and talking to them about how and they're so so excited and we're trying, and it's like two in the morning, and we're trying to edit this last piece of the day. And there's this shot of, of, of our photographer from, from Belgrade, a really, really great colleague who always used to come over to to help us out, you know, because the Athens Bureau was never enough at that back then. And you know, people were all always flying in from Madrid and London and Belgrade. And 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 he's just standing there, like people are dancing around him, and he's just standing there in the middle of of, of the ring you know his camera's down he's not even taking photos and he's just he's just staring them and like and the, the look on his face I will we'll never forget it and we were like we couldn't finish editing we were just laughing cackling in hysterical laughter like look at him he's like he's like looking at these aliens you know just dancing around him and you know he's just like do these do these people even know what is going to happen to them you know if it had ha- like mm. if the negotiation hadn't happened, if Tsipras hadn't gone back on the sixty-three percent that said no, like we would have gone to the drachmaic. We would have, you know, it was it was such a such a moment, you know, that you didn't know like the coin yeah. flip.
1: No, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, that that's why it's uh, it's a moment that so, so many of us have uh, gone back to because it really was there. You were kind of uh, oh. On on the verge of uh, the unknown. What I would say, though, because you, you mentioned it, and the, the you know the the people dancing in uh, Sendai Square, it's become a bit of a internet meme now. Uh, yeah. I, 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 every anniversary, it's out there, and 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 people are making fun of them. Uh, and I, I'll be honest, I, I as much as I, I do, obviously think these people misguided or misled or or, or weren't really fully aware of the facts. I I think it's wrong to, to treat them as if they were fools or idiots. Obviously, they were led to that point for whatever reason, either through frustration or a very difficult uh, personal situation, which the crisis brought about.
0: You know, the crisis was real, you know, (laughs) and felt by so many people. Of
1: course it was. And and making fun of these people, I think, also makes fun of the the idea that the crisis was real, as you say. Uh, A lot of people try to brush over it, but it was very, very real. It was long. It was difficult. It affected a lot of people. It drove a lot of people out of the country. It uh, 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 damaged the mental health of a lot of people. Uh, And, you know, I I, I get upset when people make fun of the, the, you know, the, the, the I don't know what they yeah, no, I, I don't know what they were dancing. Was, you were there what dance it was. So well you
0: re- well you remember yeah. like I when I was back in the in the states like you know my teachers were asking me like wow do hairdressers really get I don't know <laughs> you know can they really retire at 40 and ha 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 you lazy you know like that whole like lazy greek like no it wasn't lazy greeks and and it was unfair.
1: Yeah. And and these 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 poor people that they, they felt that this was a moment that would lead them to something better of course they, they were misguided or misled but uh, that's that's yeah. what they felt they were looking for something and I think that referendum uh, I, I, I I don't want to generalize but if you sort of boil it down into two sentiments it was on the one side people who felt that they still had a great deal to lose and they obviously voted to remain on the other side you have people who for whatever reason and for some of them it was real they felt they'd pretty much lost everything already so what mm-hmm. the hell let's let's try something else and that was uh, uh that was really the the tragedy of it all and fortunately we didn't end up in a worse uh, si- situation but i think that was a seminal evening and a <laughs> really a momentous few months uh, in in the history of this country But I guess we need to wrap it up here. (laughs) That really is it, Phoebes. We've we've had uh, a lot of uh, reminiscing and it's uh, time to move on. Thank you to everyone for listening to this anniversary episode. We hope you've got something out of this look back on the last 10 years and some personal takes on what moments stood out. If you'd like to send us your memories of this period, We'd love to read them and maybe it's we can share them on on the podcast. We'd certainly like to hear from you. There's obviously a lot of stuff that's happened over the last 10 years that we haven't even mentioned or we've uh, uh, just passed over. Uh, it, it's, it's the nature of it. But uh, if there are any standout moments that uh, you want to uh, point out to us, please feel free to get in touch.
0: In the meantime, please subscribe and rate the podcast. Keep an eye out for our next episode, which will be a more conventional take on developments in Greece. Nick and Yannis, it was awesome to have you both join me here today. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks a lot, Phoebe. It's been great to be with you. And on the other side of the microphone, having you ask me questions.
0: <laughs> That's a first. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: We have to do it again. <laughs>